Okie dokie, oh. a podcast for those addicted to the study of scripture. Welcome fellow addicts, this is your safe place to OD. Here I am. What are we going to talk about today? Today we are still in our gospel narrative. This is Gospels part 63. Last week we saw where Jesus was asking his disciples, who do people say that he was uh, to them? And we experienced Peter having this revelation seemingly from the Spirit, this sowed, this mystical aspect of God revealing something to him that he was the Christ, the Son of the living God, and Jesus affirmed that and gave him the keys to the kingdom and was going to build the assembly on the rock that is his personhood and his character. And then we go from that to a little bit of a downer where (laughs) Jesus is (laughs) teaching his disciples about his coming suffering and death, and Peter, you know, maybe (laughs) out of vigor or zeal is like, Surely this is not going to happen. I will not let that happen to you. And um, Jesus rebukes him, and we talked about how him saying, get behind me, Satan, is more of like the words that you're saying to me, Peter, is actually an obstacle to my mission to complete this thing for the redemption of the world to the end. So, like, stop saying this stuff and let me do my job. Yeah, that's right. Uh, it's, uh, <laughs> poor Peter, he has his ups and downs, but on the whole, he's a good character. We got to love him. Uh, but that whole story leads into, I don't know, I've always thought of this as one of the more well-known or popular stories in the New Testament, gospels, whatever. Uh, it's about the transfiguration. So Samuel, you ready to begin? Oh yeah. All right. Well, we're going to start, just get a little set up here. Uh, This is Matthew chapter 17, verse 1, also Mark chapter 9, verse 2, Luke chapter 9, verse 28. I think I may actually read a couple of them because we got a little discrepancy here. Matthew says this, After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. Luke, almost the same, but it says this. Now, about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. All right, so maybe just to to, to mention this real quick, you know, we just finished that little statement about there, what was it, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And we talked about that a little bit, talking about, well, it could be this, could be this, could be this. But the way that it's stated, not not many things really seem like they fulfill it well at all. But think about it. In, In the story, this is the very next story. And so there are some and I think it's reasonable and fair, they think that this story of the transfiguration that we're about to see is the fulfillment of what we just read, uh, I guess it was last episode. Now, there's, there's no doubt that the text is trying to make some sort of connection. I, I mean, I think anybody has to see that, but it still it doesn't really seem to satisfy what was actually spoken of. Now, it definitely stands as some sort of sign or some sort of witness, and it definitely fits with the image of, you know, God's Messiah being this glorious king, all of these good things. But again, I think we're probably better off just letting all the smart guys just keep duking it out amongst themselves. We're just going to go, look, you know, it could be any of these number of things, and they don't, none of them feel really satisfying. So, you know, we're just going with it. So anyway, that's connecting to where we just came from. But Samuel, when I was reading, did you hear anything in there that sounded like, wait a second, what are the, don't these guys know what they're talking about? Yeah, in the Matthew version, it says, and after six days, and then the Luke version said, now about eight days. Yeah, yeah. And it's kind of, we've talked about things like this before. Well, was it one guy or two guys? What was it, 70 or 72? Make up your mind. Different things like that. We see, well, what's the, so the question is, well, which was it, six or eight? Well, 
There's so many people who've tried to explain this. Here are some common ideas. One might think, look, uh, six full days have passed between the last speaking and the transfiguring. And we could oppose that to, well, you know, I mean, if you just counted all the partial days and stuff and you made everything be a whole day, well, maybe that added up to eight days, uh, including the days when, when they spoke and the transfer. So, so maybe it's like that. Maybe they're just counting their days differently. Another idea is that, well, Luke, number one, he says about, he's not being super precise. And Maybe Luke is relating something more in the, just in the realm of time, like actual elapsed time. And then maybe Matthew and Mark are just trying to relate. Look, here's the thing. They went through some kind of ritual preparation to go up on the mountain. They went through maybe some prayer and fasting, something like that. And so they're simply referring to the six days, because that was such a common time period, as like a clue that they've just gone through some sort of ritual preparation. And again, Luke's just talking about time. Eh, could be. I don't know. Maybe. Another one, and now now uh, I don't have many more ideas for eight, but there's a couple more cool things that relate to the six, just to say them out loud. Uh, the phrase after six days naturally leads to the idea that the transfiguration happened on the seventh day. And so then you could you could relate this transfiguration to all kinds of things that have to do with the seventh. And, you know, like the biggies would be the Sabbath day, or we think of the millennium, it's the seventh thousand year period, and, you know, all that kind of stuff. So so that's another thing, makes six look pretty good. Something else about six, uh, there are a lot of parallels with this story and the story of Moses going up on Sinai. Moses had three companions. There was Aaron and his two sons, Nadab and Abihu. Or Nadab and Abihu. It depends on where you're from. I've heard it both ways. The glory rested for six days, and then Moses was called up. Kind of a neat connection. Uh, They were in a cloud of glory. We're going to see that coming up. Uh, They heard the voice of God. We're going to see that coming up. Jesus, who we have said a number of times is the prophet like Moses, begins to radiate well, Samuel, what did Moses do when he was up on the mountain? His face shined so brightly that they had to put a veil over it. Yeah, he came down like a human glow stick. So Moses, he's in both stories. There's another thing. Elijah also heard God's voice on Sinai. He's in the story too. So I don't know. There's a lot of little connections. It's easier for me to make sense of six days than eight days, but it doesn't really matter. I mean, whatever. Just... People get upset because there's discrepancies. And so there you go. There are some ideas how you might resolve those in your own mind. Uh, Something else, it mentions that they went up on a high mountain. Uh, Others simply say they went up on the mountain. Now, here's an interesting thing, though, Samuel. For a long time, and this would be much, much earlier scholarship, meaning, you know, actually closer to Jesus's time, which is kind of funny, uh, the, the popular candidate was that they were near Mount Tabor, or Tabor, however you want to pronounce that. Now, that mountain is actually down in the lower Galilee. So that's very different. Later scholarship, mean, meaning, you know, closer to our time today, they want to pick Mount Hermon as the place where they are. Mount Hermon is near Caesarea Philippi. Remember, that's up a little, like, like north of the Galilee. It's, it's more popular with the later scholars. So for our chronological journey and our current geographical location, the way we've been talking and going through, Mount Hermon clearly makes the most sense the way we've been walking through. So we're going to be sticking with that. And just as a side note, Samuel, do you have any idea how tall Mount Hermon is? No idea. Yeah, I, I was surprised. It's nearly 10 thousand feet. Wow. So if you're thinking about the story realistically, when it says they went up on the mountain, okay, they may have gone up on it somewhere, but I think it's reasonable to think, okay, they probably didn't go all the way to the top. Oh man. Now it doesn't mean they couldn't have, but they don't have to for the story to work. That's pretty tall. My inner adventurer wants to 
push back against that. It's like, it wouldn't be nearly as satisfying if this transfiguration was like on a saddle of the mountain rather than the actual <laughs> summit. So I'm going to go I with agree. the summit. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, yeah. And the truth is we have no way of knowing. Uh, I'm just saying, hey, it is 10,000 feet tall. So you know what? If they didn't go to the top, it's okay with me. But they were a lot younger than I am. So what do I know? <laughs> they came from hardy stock, these Jews. So you never know. They could have done it. Um, and then one final little bit, Luke mentioned that they went up for the purpose of prayer. And you know what? It's not answered. It's just a question in my head. Does Jesus know that this transfiguration is coming? I mean, is he like preparing for it because he knows it's there? Or is he just preparing because he wants to go up on a mountain and spend some time with God? I don't know. Jesus, you know, he's always fond of going off to pray at night. Here's what we don't know, at least not yet. Is this in the daytime or is it at nighttime? We don't really know. And and it's I'm always curious to see what people picture in their heads. So if Samuel, if you just had to guess without us knowing anything yet, would you go daytime or nighttime? I mean, part of me wants to say nighttime because of the focus on how bright Jesus' face was. I feel like it wouldn't be nearly as um, magnanimous to witness in the daytime versus the nighttime. Well, that's possible. Well, let's go ahead and and uh, we'll see what happens in the story that's coming up. So uh, next part is uh, just another little bit, Matthew 17, 2. We're going to read the last little bit of Mark 9, 2, and also verse 3, and then Luke chapter 9, verses uh, just verse 29. Again, you know, I think I'm going to read a couple of them because I got a little extra bit. Matthew says this, and he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. Luke says, and as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. All right. Transfiguration. Most people have some, you know, familiarity with this. They got an image in their head. So you got four men up there on this mountain. Jesus is the only one who is transfigured. He is experiencing some sort of metamorphosis. And, and you know, what we're saying is in some way, his physical state even was changed. It was something supernatural. Now, we know, we just talked about this up on Sinai, Moses's face shone after just being around the glory. I mean, you know, I always think of it kind of like sunburn. He got glory burn and it just sort of <laughs> radiated back or whatever. But that was Moses. It was just his face. Jesus, he has, it's like he's become the source of that glory or that light. And now, you know, throughout the scriptures, we have, there's a big theme, Samuel, light versus darkness. Yeah. And God, of course, is light. The light. Yeah. Well, here is Jesus exhibiting that same light, at least, you know, as much as he can here in creation kind of thing. Just, and I mean, think about that. Here's Jesus. He's exhibiting this glory. He's just like God's glory up on the mountain, Sinai, like God's glory in the temple, right? All those things. So that's what's going on here. Now, we could, because we've read John chapter 1, we might say that Peter and James and John were actually getting to see Jesus in more of his true form. Maybe what we're seeing, remember how it was the word became flesh? Hmm. Maybe this is kind of like, and now... Here's what the word looks like when, you know, Jesus lets a little bit of it out or something. You know, it's, I don't know. It's kind of crazy, but it's dazzling. It's blinding. You might even say it's like lightning, that kind of light. But Luke says that his face was altered. And like the Greek text underneath, you, you might even read it as his face was of another kind. Well, okay, I get shining and brightness and glory and stuff, but what is that? His face is of another kind. So it's difficult to say what this really looked like in totality. But the text never says it, at least not yet. But Samuel, are you surprised that they're not scared to death yet? 
I mean, they've been scared uh, about things far less crazy than this. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, it's it's a it's an interesting picture. Now I have a question before we move on, since we're kind of just getting into this. Um, uh-huh. I'm under the impression that I mean I know that we've mentioned it previously that each of the four gospel writers kind of has a different audience to who they're writing, and I'm under the impression that Matthew was writing to a Jewish audience, and in particular in verse two of chapter seventeen. When he says, and he was transfigured before them, would that have been a word that they would have been familiar with? Because at least in my mind with like that principle of first mention, I'm trying to rack my brain of thinking, has there been any other mention of just in general of transfiguring uh, in the Gospels up until this point? And then I've tried to look up some Old Testament references and I haven't found any, so I just wonder would the audience know what Matthew was saying by using that word? That is a really good question. I just took a quick peek, and one thing that I can say is there was no word like this in the Septuagint. So when they translated all of the Hebrew scriptures into Greek that first time, the Septuagint, they had no word like this. So, I don't know, Samuel. I don't know if they would know what that meant or not. That's crazy. Mm-hmm. Which, I, But that's interesting because Matthew chose to say that. Mark also said that. Luke says the appearance of his face was altered. Mm-hmm. You know, described the face and clothing, stuff like that. So, I don't know. That's a good question. Yeah. I think it's interesting, too, with your mention of Luke because also this won't be the last time that a character in the biblical story has a transfiguring like experience in acts chapter 6 verses 15 um it the text seems to imply that stephen has some sort of altering of uh, of appearance it says and fixing their this is like before he was getting ready to get stoned i think and it says and fixing their gaze on him all who were sitting in the council saw his face like the face of an angel so i wonder <laughs> yeah. if there's something connecting that too yeah, that's a good one. Very good. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, I, and it's interesting. I mean, even now that you've asked the question, I'm just going, huh, that's funny. It would seem like in all the stuff that I was reading, somebody would have mentioned some Old Testament story or something, similar thing. And now here I am, and I'm drawing a blank. There may be something really obvious I'm forgetting, but mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I got. I don't know. That's a good question. Perfect opportunity for people to send us an email at okidokimos at gmail.com. You'd be the first. (laughs) Just put in the subject line, you are dumb, and we will check it out. (laughs) No, that should be good. That's good. All right, so let's go on, because, I mean, he's sitting there glowing. we got to see what's happening. Matthew chapter 17, verse 3, Mark chapter 9, verse 4, Luke chapter 9, verses 30 through 32. So I'm going to go ahead and read Luke. He's got more info in here. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now, Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. Okay, I think we're starting to get some good clues now. Mm -hmm. So, first of all, two more guys show up and somehow, and I don't know if this is just because they're telling the story later or whatever, but you get the sense that, I mean, they looked at them and they just knew who they were. Moses (laughs) Moses and Elijah. (laughs) <laughs> Mojus. Mojus and Elisa. Yeah. So Luke tells us that they also appeared in glory, meaning, you know, in some sense, they must have looked something like Jesus did. Wow, that kind of complicates things or makes it more interesting or something. Let's look at this. You know what? Samuel, read us from Malachi chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. Remember the law of my servant Moses. 
the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Oh. Now think about that. We're talking about when does the kingdom come and, you know, what was Jesus referring to? And now, oh my goodness, this isn't just John the Baptist who is like in the spirit of Elijah. This is actually Elijah and he's shown up. Well, this has got to be something that's playing in their heads, right, Samuel? Yeah, I mean, I mean, for a minute when I was reading that, I thought that you like lumped two different verses together, but literally that reference in Malachi mentions both Moses and Elijah. Yeah. That's and wicked. Yeah, and here's the cool thing about it. So it, what is an important thing that you find running through the, the law itself? Well, it's the idea of witnesses. There always have to be at least two witnesses. And who are our two witnesses today? Elijah and Moses. Yeah, and they each represent something very important. Moses, I bet you can guess this one, Samuel, represents the... The law. Yeah, and Elijah represents the... Uh, I want to say maybe the kingdom or the Messiah. Oh, those are good answers. I was looking for prophets. Oh, okay. Yeah, and the reason I would say it that way is because now what you have represented is the law and the prophets. Oh, okay. Ah, the scriptures. Yeah. Two witnesses, and they're bearing witness to everything that God has spoken. It's so cool. But anyway, Elijah's presence here, it's going to figure in again, you know, as we continue. So keep an eye on that. But here's another thing that's interesting. What, how do I say this? Well, I'm just going to say it instead of asking. Moses, okay, he died. And so you think about that. He did. That's right. What form was he appearing in? But then Elijah, he didn't die. He just, he was just taken up. So what form did he appear in? I mean, did they, did they look the same or was there something uniquely different about them? We don't know. All we know is we now have two witnesses and guess what? It's not just about the law and the prophets, the scripture. They also represent the living and the dead. This is, this is an amazing moment. Mm-hmm. This is, there's so much in this story. And then Luke adds some very important detail. He says that they, uh, the, the three glowing guys, Jesus, Moses, and Elijah, they talk about Jesus's departure. Now, obviously, we, we, looking in hindsight, we can roll forward a little bit and go, oh yeah, it's death on the cross, the resurrection, I got it. But that word, departure, I think it would actually be better translated as his exodus. They talked about Jesus's exodus, that he was about to accomplish, and even there, I mean, you know, maybe a better word would be fulfill, the exodus that he was about to fulfill in Jerusalem. So it tells us they talk about it, but it doesn't tell us what they said. I mean, did they give him, did they give him some details that he didn't know before? Were they just kind of, I don't know, hey, we heard what's happening. We're just going to commiserate with you for a while. I don't know. Was it that? Was this whole scene really nothing more than an idea for a scene in the original Star Wars trilogy? I mean, we can only guess. But I've, I, I imagine, I imagine them saying things like, yeah, sorry, dude. We've exhausted every other option. It's the only way left. <laughs> or, or, yeah, I hate to say it, but uh, it's going to be crucifixion. Or, hey, in case you didn't know, Passover is the day. I mean, it is your exodus after all. That was kind of a good one. Mm. <laughs> uh, how about this one? Uh, they're all going to abandon you, bro. But they'll be back. Or here's a note. You know what? Consider yourself a lucky man. You get two exoduses. One from life and one from death. I mean, who knows? I like how hip you made Moses and Elijah. They seem like super cool dudes. Oh, they are. Yeah, they totally are. Have you not met them yet? (laughs) Yeah. 
it, it's, I don't know. I, I love imagining my way through some of these stories because, again, we've talked about it. they They leave the stories a little bit sparse so that you have room to kind of fill these things in. And it just, it makes them so much more rich. But I don't know. You got to get that idea that they're having this conversation. We don't know what that conversation is. And so we kind of have to imagine if we're going to have any clue at all. Oh, but you know what? Luke adds one more detail, probably an important one. And at this point, it sounds so much more like the rest of the stories. Peter, James, and John were asleep. And maybe that's why they weren't scared. (laughs) Right? But it also makes it pretty darn clear that, yeah, you know what? It probably was nighttime. I mean, sure, people take naps, but seriously, it was probably, probably at night. So they went to sleep while Jesus was just a plain old human looking guy, but they woke up to him all glorified. And he even had a couple of guests also glorified. So they wake up, they see this. And interestingly, it still doesn't say anything about them being scared. And so, I mean, I don't know. This is kind of a cool situation. Maybe it wasn't scary at all. Maybe it was just wonderful and glorious. Mm-hmm. I don't know. We'll have to keep reading and see what it tells us. Yeah. I Whenever the first time I heard this way of looking at the transfiguration story that Moses and Elijah were kind of relaying the news of what was going to happen to him. I mean, it was game changing for me because it just, it showcases the, again, reinforces the dynamic nature of God and his story and Jesus and his, his will of his own that he had and the potential for him to not complete his mission, uh, given his own freedom in the story. So I, I like it a whole bunch, um, but I do have something I'm wrestling with, and that is I'm a little confused because, in at least on the Matthew side of things, before we get to this part in chapter 17, that story from last week where Jesus rebukes Peter in Matthew yeah. 16, right before that, the text says, this is Matthew 16, 21, it says, From that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. So, yeah, I, like I'm not trying to poke holes in that Jesus could have been revealed what was going to happen to him at the Transfiguration story. But if I'm if I'm at least following Matthew from start to finish, it just makes me wonder: like, did he know part of the story, and then Moses and Elijah were filling in the gaps? Like, I don't know. That's just tough. Right. Yeah. And that's why I said the part about, well, I mean, we don't really know. Were were they actually telling him unknown stuff? Or were they really just, you know, li- like commiserating? Comforting, encouraging. Yeah. Yeah. It didn't turn out the way we'd hoped, but, you know, we knew this was a possibility. So there you go. Or, uh, yeah, it could have been any number of things. And he, I mean, okay, true. We are trying to attempt to put things in chronological order. Could we be wrong? Okay, well, that's a thing. Could it be? I mean, remember, they wrote these these Gospels decades after all the events happened. So, you know, were they kind of backfilling information that they knew then, but they, they maybe didn't know it in the order we see it? We don't know. We don't know. But yeah, I totally agree with you, Samuel. Mm-hmm. But, but, but they were having a conversation about something. I mean, why did they show up? And why does Luke mention that they have this conversation if there wasn't some sort of important information being transferred? I don't know. Mm-hmm. We just don't know what it was. Yeah. We just don't know. I also just want to say really quickly, um, given another opportunity to give the disciples more of a break than what is typically given of them, think about Peter, James, and John being asleep, and then they wake up and they're seeing all of this light and glory around Jesus and these two other figures. I mean, and the Luke version specifically says when they became fully awake, they saw his glory in the two men that stood with him. But I'm just thinking with how human nature works and our tendency to go into times of wrestling and doubting and stuff. I'm just thinking like if people were like, well, here again, here's another example. 
the disciples get to see stuff plain as day. Why did they struggle and abandon him all at the end? Well, if I'm in Peter, James, or John's shoes, I, I'm thinking when I'm going off of that mountain after this is over with, like, was I was I just dreaming that? Like, I, right. I fell asleep and like I was like half out of it, and I'm like trying to open my eyes, and there's all this light, and I think I was awake and I saw this stuff, but like, did that really happen? Like. Just yeah. just put yourself in their shoes, and it has to be harder than we give it credit for. Oh, yeah. Yeah. We're so silly, the way we look back and act like they're dumb and we're not. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I, those are all good points, Samuel. Good points. So let's, let's see what happens, because, I mean, we're right in the middle of it. Let's keep going. Matthew 17, uh, verse 4. Mark uh, 9, verses 5 and 6, and Luke 9, verse 33. And I think I'm going to le- read from Luke. It says this, And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. Not knowing what he said. And actually, you know what? Mark actually says it a little bit better in in his verse 6. He says, talking about Peter, he says, For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. Oh, now we know. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Okay, so, and now, I, I mean, first of all, just like any of us, Here's Peter. He's going to do probably the most obvious thing that anyone would do in the situation that they're in right now. He suggests building a few tents. (laughs) A camping guy, my kind of guy. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, don't inside your brain, don't you just go, what? Mm -hmm. Why do you want to build tents? What are you doing? And it is, it it comes across as very weird to me too, but let's try and make at least a little bit of sense from it. So, okay, and you did a good job already going over this. We're going to try it one more time. Peter, okay, remember, first he came to that full, complete, real, spiritual understanding that Jesus was indeed God's Messiah. That was a big moment. And then he gets told that Jesus is going to go to Jerusalem and die. And then he gets a little scolding because he doesn't want that to happen. But then Peter sees this glorious display. And I don't know, you got to wonder, maybe Peter is getting his hopes up again a little bit. Maybe he thinks there's still a chance for a different ending to the story. And remember, we read that verse and think about it. This is the real Elijah, after all. I mean, he's supposed to be the forerunner of the Christ. So, I don't know, maybe Peter's getting the hopes up a little bit, and he's thinking, hey, you're all here, don't leave, you just need to stay, right? Luke says that the men, and and I, I think the obvious interpretation is Moses and Elijah, the men that were with him, Luke says they were parting, and so Peter sees that. He knows they're leaving, and, I mean, this seems like a really good thing. In fact, it could be the thing that he was hoping for and actually got scolded for. He didn't know what to say or do. He's just kind of freaking out because he he doesn't want them to leave. And so, hey, I'll make some tents. You don't have to go. Don't go. Stay. So, you know, at least there's something sort of practical or or you can imagine just the normal humanity of something like that is that really what's going on really i don't know but there's something maybe it's just not so crazy after all it just seems a little bit jarring when you read it because you you the last thing you would ever expect is he was going to build some tents another thing maybe the final thing i don't know it it doesn't make any sense because uh, I've heard a lot of people uh, talk about how, oh, well, Peter brought that up because it was uh, had something to do with the festival of Sukkot, the festival of booths, festival of tabernacles, right? Well, that doesn't really make any sense because at least everything that we can tell from the stories and where we're at in the timeline, I, we're not in the festival of Sukkot. We're not really near this festival of Sukkot. But to be fair, 
the story does have a lot of hints about the festival. I mean, the, the, the tents, the tabernacles, that's an obvious part. That's like the Feast of Tabernacles. Less obvious, though, is that, and this, this is kind of interesting, the tents, when, when we talk about that Jewish festival and them putting up their little sukkahs and all of that, one of the things that, that they were relating to was that tabernacle in the desert, the original tabernacle. And what is one of the big, dynamic, awesome features of that tabernacle, Samuel? The glory of the Lord is within it. Yeah, that was the craziest thing ever. And so when they build their little sukkahs, the, you know, the idea is they're associating this with the, the dwelling of that Shekinah, that glory, that cloud. So you actually sort of know from Jesus's appearance, you sort of make that connection and wait till you see what's coming up next. And so we definitely have connections to the festival of Sukkot, but at least as far as, I, I don't know, most of the people that I'm reading, nobody thinks that we're in the festival of Sukkot. So it's not quite that close of a tie. Mm-hmm. And hey, Mark finally lets us know they were indeed terrified. <laughs> so. Thanks, Mark. Yeah, I don't feel so bad because I know I would have been freaking out myself. Yeah, hopefully I'm not. I don't want to be spoiling the next part that we're going through. Um, but And maybe I'm assuming to some degree, but I feel like between Western church and culture versus first century Judaism and prior to that, they had more of a tangible sense and understanding, even experience of what the glory of the Lord was to them. And so for Peter, like if, he has a way of like being able to identify the glory of the Lord by seeing it based on his history with his people group, all his descendants leading up before him. Like the the natural thing it seems like for him to do, it's like if there's glory present, we need to build something for it to rest inside because not only That's did a the really glory good way to say it rest in the tabernacle at least in the first temple solomon's temple the glory definitely resided in there i mean there's more debate of whether the glory was present in the second temple the one that jesus interacted with but just keep that in mind like that that is like one and two next to one another in terms of connection glory tabernacle shelter let it dwell so that we can interact with it without dying yeah that's really good But wait, there's more. (laughs) This is really good. Yeah, Matthew 17, verses 5 and 6, Mark chapter 9, verse 7, Luke chapter 9, verses 34 and 35. Check this out. It says, He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And a voice from the cloud said, This is is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. (laughs) Okay. Now that probably sounds a little bit more like the glory you were talking about, huh? Mm -hmm. Instead of Charles Barkley's terrible, it's terrified. That's right. Terrified. So even while Peter's still talking, God himself starts showing up. It's a bright cloud. It's what we've been talking about. It's that Shekinah cloud. It was all around them. And Luke says that this is when they became afraid. Okay. But then God speaks. And this, I mean, this has happened before. It happened at Sinai. It happened at Jesus's baptism in the Jordan. We're going to see that it's going to happen in Jesus's final entry into Jerusalem. I want to look at a few verses that are kind of associated with God's small little speech here, because it sort of brings out just this interesting thing. God is speaking right there in that moment, and yet it seems to relate to stuff that's already in his quote-unquote word. This is so cool. So we'll just do them real quick, and you can study more on them. So this is my beloved son. He said that at Jesus' baptism. 
And we could go back to a one of the Messiah Psalms, Psalm 2. Sammy, why don't you read verse 7? I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Yeah, you are my son. And then, uh, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Uh, he said that at Jesus' baptism. And this kind of relates back to the binding of Isaac. Really cool picture like a foreshadowing of the the death and resurrection, right? Uh, Genesis 22, verse 2. Why don't you read that one, Samuel? He said, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah, and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Yeah, This this is Abraham reaping the consequences of what he did uh, with his uh, Egyptian maidservant, right? That thing. But you heard it. Take your son, your only son, whom you love, right? Now, Luke adds an interesting phrase all on his own. He calls him my chosen one. And that that's another really cool picture. Back in the book of Isaiah, one of the big themes in Isaiah's book is the servant of the Lord. And so, Samuel, Isaiah 42, verse 1, why don't you read that? Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Oh, there's so much in that one verse. But he does mention my chosen. Uh, he talks about in whom my soul delights, right? With whom I'm well pleased. Uh, I, oh, I just love he will bring forth justice to the nations. And that's the big story. That's the part. Sometimes it takes them a little bit to pick up on, but whatever. We know how that comes out. Uh, and then the last bit, this is so important. God tells them, listen to him. And this is a direct connection to the prophet like Moses, you know, supposed to be Messiah. It goes back to Deuteronomy eighteen fifteen. Samuel, read that. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you. From your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Yeah. It's it's so ah, oh, these connections are so good. I encourage you, we went through those really quickly. You should go back and read not just the verses we said, but all around them. Look, look at the connections, look at similarities and stories, all that stuff. I think it'll really enrich the way you're seeing this little bit. And then I don't know if you noticed, uh, Luke is the one that said when the clouds started showing up, they got scared. Matthew says it was when God's voice happened that, okay, now that's just too much. That's when they were terrified. Mm-hmm. And that sounds just like when they were at Sinai. God spoke. They didn't like it at all. And they're like, Moses, you talk to God mm-hmm. and you tell us what he said. We don't want to even go through that again. Yeah, It's crazy. Mm-hmm. I can't even imagine what God's voice might be like. Yeah. And may I just say, this is I'm being sarcastic. I'm also, in the nicest way, being a turd also. It's almost (laughs) as if the things that God is saying right here, he has already said within his text, and it's it's almost as if the Torah that we have is God's word in terms of his revelation to humanity. So I'm just throwing that out there. It's like, oh, he's saying things that he has already said. Yeah, that's exactly the point. And so many times we like to think of the New Testament and all this as like some big change has happened. And we like to look at Jesus as if, oh, he was such a trendsetter. He did all these new... You know what? There's very, very little innovation going on here. It's the same story that had always been. It's just bringing it to clarity and to fruition. And so, yeah. You're right on, Samuel. You can be as sarcastic as you like. You know I like it. (laughs) All right. So what else happens? Matthew chapter 17, verses 7 to 9. Mark chapter 9, verses 8 to 10. And Luke chapter 9, verse 36. Uh, Let's go ahead and read Matthew. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, They saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, 
tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. Mark adds a really cool little bit in his uh, uh, chapter 9, verse 10. He says, So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. So, I I don't know, it's kind of cool. Jesus reaches out, he gives them this comforting touch. And we don't have to talk about it here, but if you're interested, go back and read the book of Daniel. Focus in on chapter 10, verses 8 to 10, and you'll see something, another instance of a comforting touch. Just thought I'd toss that in there. It's free. And he tells them that they don't need to be afraid. And, you know, as they look around, they only see Jesus. And, you know, sort of the, I guess the inference is, you know, he looks normal again. The glory's gone, at least visibly, it's gone. So there he is, it's just Jesus. And as they're making their way down the mountain, Jesus tells them, hey, you can't tell anybody what you've seen here just now. At least not until I've been raised from the dead. And he says the son of man, but at this point, surely they know that he's talking about himself, right? Now, Mark and Luke actually tell us they actually did it. They kept it to themselves. They told no one, not even any of the other 12. So. That's pretty good. Got to give them kudos for self-control. But this thing about questioning what the rising of the dead might mean. So Jews in general, and I'm going to say especially the Pharisees, because they're the ones that had developed, or maybe we could say the Pharisees developed out of this interpretation or whatever, but they were the ones with this idea that there was life after death, that this sort of spiritual realm and our role in it, this idea that death wasn't the end. And, and you know, so, so this concept of resurrection wasn't non-existent. The difference was, though, the expectation was maybe more toward like, well, there's going to be an end of all things. And so there's going to be this point when everyone is resurrected, or maybe not everyone, maybe only those who who uh, were worthy in some way, right? They were on God's team. They were righteous and loyal and faithful and all that. But it was just more of a more of a group thing, which, of course, we still have that. But I, I think the point that's confusing them is, okay, one guy, one guy dying and raising, what, what is that? How, how does that work? And so it just wasn't a part of their story. And so for them, it may have seemed a little weird. And so they're trying to figure out well, how does his lone resurrection fit into the story? Now, of course, as we continue through our studies, uh, through the Gospels, and then I think actually it's going to help us to get into the book of Acts too, but we'll see how that fits. Now, Jesus had already told all of the 12 about his death and resurrection. And so, you know, uh, that isn't the important part. Still, it's the vision that they were keeping quiet, but... Mark, you know, he kind of he kind of makes it seem like it was only the three of them who were really questioning this resurrection of the dead thing. Uh, maybe it included the other disciples or not. I don't know. We don't have to draw too hard of a line there is all I'm saying. But anyway. Yeah, um, sound like a broken record, but this section just continues to reinforce the the difficulty of this situation for those three disciples because— yeah. They saw all that stuff, they fell on their faces out of fear, and then it's almost like the next moment, uh, within a snap, they look up again, and the two f- other figures they saw weren't there, the The glory around them was gone, Jesus' face looked normal again. I mean, think about back to the Exodus and Sinai story, at least with Moses, like his the the glory of his face continued to dwell on him after that instance with God at the top right. of the mountain, like even whenever they built the tabernacle and he would go in to talk with God and come in and out, he would have to put a veil on afterwards because he would get like reverberations of the glory onto his being. And even didn't he transport some of the glory to, was it Joshua? Uh, before uh like the the conquest began after uh, Moses's death, I just sworn I remember that 
he placed hands on someone that was going to be his predecessor. And oh, that, he definitely did that. Gotcha. Yeah. So uh, the um, now, okay, maybe we're just thinking about that in different ways. I think about that in a very similar to the way that I look at the sacrifices. So that laying on of hands was imparting identity. And so as Moses represented the mediator between God and his people Israel, of course, you know, the priesthood was going to do that, but he was passing that on, like like giving his identity to Joshua. So that was a very real thing. Yeah, it, that was a little bit of a rabbit trail, but just, you know, it has to feel different whenever that instance seems to be as abruptly ending as it did to begin. Um, and then yeah. also Jesus' statement in Matthew seventeen nine, where he said, tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. That, that phrase, Son of Man, often in our translations, even in the one that we're using, ESV, they capitalize the Son of Man to make it seem messianic. But in Jewish thought, the the phrase son of man just meant human like human being and so the disciples could have heard him saying like don't tell anyone this until humanity is raised from the dead and that makes the mark version make so much more sense when they're questioning among themselves what this rising from the dead must mean because it's like well how can we not tell anyone until humanity is raised because aren't we going to die before that happens too like (laughs) it's just it's it's much more complex than our translations make it seem yeah and and your your overarching point about hey this had to be a super crazy experience for these guys and you know to sit in judgment later about how smart or dumb they looked or whatever you know what you're gonna have to walk a mile in that man's shoes but anyway uh, where are we? We've got one last little bit. You know what? Uh, let's fit this in. We can do it. Matthew chapter 17, verses 10 through 13, and Mark chapter 9, verses 11 to 13. I'll go ahead and read Matthew. He's got some more info in here. It says, And the disciples asked him, Then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he answered, Elijah does come, and he will. Restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. Now, Mark does something kind of interesting. When they ask the question, hey, why do the scribes say Elijah must come? And he says, oh, Elijah will, he's going to restore all things. Mark includes Jesus asking them a question. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? Which is kind of cool because he actually sort of ends up answering it over in Matthew. I don't know, the whole thing's weird. But anyway, what do we got here? So these few disciples, they have... Uh, even more questions. Now, the first one, so so he's explaining all this. Uh, he's told them, you know, they, they get to see the glory and all that. And then he's like, yeah, but, you know, don't tell anybody until, you know, the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And they're going, well, wait, since you're Messiah, I mean, wasn't Elijah supposed to come first? And and Elijah, he he was here. So this seemed like the fulfillment of everything, but then he left. So what's going on? I mean, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first, right? So it's a good question. And and so Jesus tries to assure them that, look, Elijah is supposed to come first, and he will come first at the time when God will be restoring all things. So in this part, he's actually referencing his second coming, the advent of the Messianic age. Now, I'm not sure if his disciples really get that at this point or not, but whatever. We can, like looking back in hindsight, this at least seems to make sense. But then Jesus comes back to speaking of the present time, his present time, his first coming. And then he tells them that, hey, just so you know, Elijah has already come. 
So Elijah, uh, how do we say this? Elijah will come first at his second coming. Not sure how much they get that. But Elijah has already come first for his first appearing, his advent. But the problem was that nobody actually recognized that he was Elijah, so they did to him whatever they pleased, meaning that they killed him. And what's cool about that is that that makes Elijah, or John the Baptist in this case, he was the forerunner of Messiah in his suffering and death, just like he's going to be the forerunner of Messiah when he comes in glory. I just think that is amazing and awesome. So anyway, the disciples, at least they picked up for sure on the part where Jesus was referring to John the Baptist. He was the one who had come in the spirit of Elijah. And so Mark mentions that it was written that this would happen to Elijah. Crazy thing is, Samuel, nobody really knows where that is. (laughs) Mark thinks it was written somewhere, but we don't know where. And obviously it's outside of our current canon of scripture. So, you know, whatever that means. But one last bit, Jesus also addresses the idea that he will also not be recognized. This is, you know, again, on his first trip, and and that he's ultimately going to be killed too. Now, Mark, remember I said he asked that extra question, how is it written that the Messiah should suffer and be treated with contempt? And uh, I just think this is such a great connection to the idea of the two Messiahs. I know we've talked about it here in the podcast before. Jews had this long-running question about the Messiah. The question was, how could he, in some places, appear to be a conquering king in the scriptures, and how could he, in other places, appear to be a suffering servant? The two didn't go together. And so, an idea had come about that, hey, maybe there are going to be two messiahs. One is called the the Messiah son of Joseph. He would represent the suffering Messiah. And the other was the Messiah son of David. He represented that conquering Messiah, if you will. And so we see glimpses within this very text of how it's, you know, kind of as if there are two messiahs, except we get the hint that Jesus is both. He fulfills both roles. In his first coming, he suffers and dies, but he's resurrected. And then we we later get this idea that he's going to return, and when he returns, he's going to be that conquering king. Mm. So I just think that's yeah, all amazing. This is this is such a great little section of scripture, the transfiguration, what followed. I don't know, Samuel. This is good mm. stuff. I agree. So good. Um, and then if, if people are wondering, I've, I have probably also brought this up multiple times as well, so sorry if it's repetitive, but it'll read for some point, and hopefully it will represent true learning on the listener's part. But if people are fixed on the, the part of the, the disciples' response, why they're so up in arms about Elijah being a part of this, because some people might respond saying like, well, what does it matter if Elijah came before or after if Messiah is here right now? Like, why are they so concerned about that? Well, man, Elijah had such a big part within their traditions, especially within their God-ordained like festivals and holidays that they yeah. celebrated, like especially within Passover. If, if a Jewish family performs a Passover cedar, there's a part in that ceremony well, first off, they have their table set with all the food that they're going to eat and the candles and everything placed with the written Torah for them to be able to read from. And they have an empty chair there that is set for Elijah. And then right. there's, a part in, there's a part in the ceremony where the parents, the patriarchs, whatever, give time for the children to leave the table and go out to the front door and open it and like call out for Elijah, like, hey, Elijah, like, just letting you know, like, if you want to come now, like, that would be great. So, um, it, I mean, 
just think about a, a whole nation of people doing that year after year after year. Like Elijah becomes a really big part of their story and kingdom yeah. coming and Messiah coming. Yeah, it's a good point. It's not as if Moses isn't important, but yeah, he's he's a big part of the story. Yeah, it's good. Well, much like the two men disappeared, Samuel, I think you and I need to disappear for this episode. Sound good? Make like a tree and leave. (laughs) That's right. Oh, come on. Now I have to do the dad thing. Uh, Make like a banana and split. (laughs) All right. (laughs) All right, let's cut this off. We're done. Okie dokie. Thank you for listening to the Okie Dokie Most Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe so that you never miss an episode. And be sure to leave us a rating and a review to let us know how this content is impacting your life. You can find out more information about the podcast at www.okidokimos.com. And if you'd like to get a hold of us, please send us an email at okidokimos at gmail.com. And until next time, we pray that you will do your best to present yourself to God as one approved a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. I'll talk to you again soon.